This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land. Coming up, a win for podcast justice as Sydney school teacher Chris Dawson is found guilty of murdering his wife 40 years ago. But the true crime genre is still causing increasing problems for the courts. Also, a new Prime Minister about to step up in the UK. Who is it? And how will the monumental challenges facing the nation be tackled? But first, low wages, no staff. It's a combination that's meant to resolve itself as the demand for workers drives up the price employers are willing to pay for them. Instead, the workplace seems bogged down by regulations and red tape, hurting business, workers and the economy. Real wages are going backwards and employers are struggling to plug holes in the roster. This week, the government had a crack at tackling both issues at its National Jobs Summit. An economy where every Australian who wants a good, secure, well-paid job can find one. And where every employer who needs a good, enthusiastic, well-trained worker can find one as well. Rising profits and rising wages, not rising profits or rising wages. It was a packed agenda and the announcements were carefully stage managed from increasing migration to making it easier for older workers to stay in work and the ever difficult subject of industrial relations reform. And as the summit wrapped up, the government claimed there were 36 concrete outcomes. Look, Australia was a kind of sleepy backwater when it came to policy for the last nine years or so. And on the question of industrial relations, Australia's been in a very uh, sad place for a very long time. Enterprise bargaining has not served the country well at all. It's fragmented our workforce. The fact that we're moving on to a debate now about how we reap the benefits of coordination across enterprises is a, is a very welcome development. Professor John Buchanan is an industrial relations expert at the University of Sydney Business School. One of the more surprising announcements was the return of multi-employer bargaining. Well, currently in our industrial relations system, labour market standards are set by two things. Awards provide an absolute minimum. Uh, and they vary by industry and occupation. But it's possible for people to improve their wages and conditions by negotiating with their employer. And this is done on a collective basis. So unions usually organise around a particular organisation to lift standards for wages and conditions. So a bunch of workers in one organisation. In one organisation, absolutely. So if you're in one childcare centre or in one aged care establishment, you organise with the owner of that establishment. Now, the idea of multi-employer bargaining is that it uh, holds that many of the situations that workers face are common across an industry. You know, an, a childcare worker is expected to have essentially the same skills and it's recognised that funding arrangements are often organised on an industry level, not on a particular organisation level. And so multi-employer bargaining is allowing people with common experiences to get together and ensure that you get economies of scale by collaborating or coordinating and negotiating across a sector. How significant historically is this change? 
Yeah, look, it's really significant. Um, multi-employer bargaining was the predominant way in which collective bargaining happened in Australia from uh, the 19th century up to uh, basically 1991. After 1991, it, uh, the Labor government at the time said it wanted to end basically unions doing things on an industry or sector basis and they wanted them to argue enterprise by enterprise on how to lift wages and that was a bipartisan position. Uh, the Liberal uh, opposition at the time supported it and the ACT on the Labor government said this was the way to boost productivity. Right, so we've also had significant movement this week on the boot, the better off overall test. Just explain to our listeners what that is and why that hasn't been working as well as it should. Well, in Australia, uh, there's a floor below which no one can fall, at least in theory, in terms of wages and conditions, and they're they're called awards. uh, And awards provide a pretty comprehensive set of conditions to protect uh, workers with respect to a minimum. Now, when you move to negotiate an enterprise agreement, you can change employment conditions, so you can change penalty rates. Uh, awards across the board say that if you have to work on a Saturday or a Sunday, you're entitled to pay, do you pay significantly more than the going rate for um, a weekday. Now, when you negotiate an enterprise, and many employers in the services sector have done this, they've said, we don't want to pay penalty rates on the weekend, but we will lift the base rate so that uh, we essentially just pay one rate. And it doesn't matter which day of the week you work. Now, under the better off overall test, the rule was if any one worker was disadvantaged, the agreement was not held to be a valid agreement. And employers argued this was preventing enterprise agreements getting up. And there's an interest in moving to a more general notion that better off overall is interpreted more loosely. So if most workers are better off, it will be able to be let through. It can't fall foul just simply because one or two workers aren't better off. Now, this is a principle that applied. There used to be a a rule called the the no disadvantage test. Um, There's been lots of tampering with this provision. So this relationship between awards and agreements has been an area of considerable instability in our IR system for about 20 years. Yes, but even the movements this week have been highly controversial, particularly the multi-employer bargaining element with some business groups who claim that it'll lead to such an increase in union power that we're going to see rolling strikes and the like. Is that something you think could happen? I think it's unlikely. Um, Most countries with collective bargaining systems around the world have multi-employer bargaining and they're not riven with industrial conflict. The the other thing we've got to keep in mind is that uh, Australia has a, a major productivity wage problem. You know, there's a, the way uh, employers often say that um, we don't get movements on pay unless there's movements in productivity. Well, we've got a problem that goes the other way. Productivity is improved, but workers haven't shared in the gains. And this has been recognised by organisations like the OECD and the International Labor Office and the like. That, and because wages have not kept up with productivity, uh, they've stagnated. Uh, profit share has increased. And employers put up this fear-mongering about increased strikes. The the counter question's got to be, well, if you don't have multi-employer bargaining to enhance bargaining power, how do they intend to overcome the problem of wage stagnation? Mm. And do you think this will solve that problem or at least go some way in in boosting wages? Look, the 
It, it will go some way. I think the best way of thinking about this is, you know, when the Queen Mary was going at uh, full bore, uh, I think it was 24 knots, if you decided to change direction, it took 24 nautical miles to turn around. The changes in the IR system that have held back wages have been, you know, 30 years in the making. A move to multi-employer bargaining is, is the first step, but there's going to be, have to be a lot more to come through to really uh, lift wages. That's Professor John Buchanan, an industrial relations expert at the University of Sydney Business School. It was an Australian cold case that gained global attention. She was a slight little thing, pretty short blonde hair. She was a nice girl. The disappearance of Lynette Dawson went unsolved for almost 40 years before a podcast placed it back in the spotlight. Now it has been four years since many podcast listeners first started hearing a lot about the story of Lynn and Chris and twin brother Paul and their partners and a high school on the northern beaches. It was downloaded 60 million times and ultimately that led to charges being laid against Lynette's husband, Chris Dawson. Then came a trial and this week, Justice Ian Harrison found Chris Dawson guilty of murdering his wife so that he could conduct an unfettered relationship with a 16-year-old girl. It took him five hours to read out his reasoning. There was a lot of evidence. Michael Bradley is managing partner of Mark Lawyers and an expert in media law. He had to deal with and discard the evidence from Dawson's side that suggested that Dawson hadn't killed his wife and that included Dawson's own testimony that she had called him. There was other evidence from witnesses that had thought they had seen her subsequently. So so he had to go through all of that and he, uh, he ultimately rejected all of the evidence and then sort of ended up with the conclusion that he was satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that murder was the only rational explanation for what had happened and was ultimately satisfied that Dawson had killed her notwithstanding the gaps in the evidence. I'm satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that the only rational inference that the circumstances enabled me to draw is that Lynette Dawson died on about 8 January 1982 as the result of a conscious and voluntary act committed by Mr Dawson with the intention of causing her death. It is as circumstantial as a case can get in a murder case because you have no forensic evidence, you've got no clear murder scene, no weapon, etc. Then, yes, it really is, you know, it's a hypothesis, really, you know, well, what could have happened, but the judge needed to get to what must have happened. Otherwise, he would have reasonable doubt. Another extraordinary element of the Chris Dawson case was the pivotal role the podcast played. It was taken offline in 2019 to avoid prejudicing the trial or influencing witnesses. But Chris Dawson's defence team still tried to have the trial halted through what's called a stay of proceedings on the basis that it was impossible for him now to receive a fair trial. That attempt was unsuccessful. The trial went ahead with only a judge because the court feared a jury could be more easily prejudiced by all the media attention. Even so, Justice Harrison faced major challenges in delivering a fair trial. These challenges were often based on the proposition that particular witnesses were irrevocably compromised by the influence upon them of the Teacher's Pet podcast, either because they have developed a a predisposition against Mr Dawson as a result of listening to it, 
<clears throat> or participating in it, or because their memories have otherwise been corrupted or supplanted by this publicity that it has generated. It's a really controversial area. There's the sort of practical fact that true crime has become an increasingly popular medium. You know, more and more podcasts and TV shows and, and so on are you know, dredging up cold cases and old cases and, and conducting fresh investigations as an exercise in journalism slash entertainment. Mm. They often bring about positive results in that there are many cases where it has been this type of journalism which has either brought about a prosecution or sometimes exonerated someone who's been wrongfully convicted, either like a combination of you know, journalists doing the work that maybe the police should have or could have or whatever reason didn't, or just bringing you know, more public and therefore political attention onto something that's gone cold and reviving the impetus to do something about it. And obviously there is a clear and compelling public interest in people who have committed crimes being prosecuted. So that's, you know, beyond doubt. But balanced against that is the harm that can be done, both to the the ability of an accused person to get a fair trial and to the system of justice as a result, because justice is not a form of entertainment. So the courts are sort of acutely aware of this tension and they do their best to balance it out. And in this particular case, the, the judge who dealt with the stay application was extremely critical of the podcast, described you know, much of it as scandalous and called it the most egregious example of media interference with the criminal trial process which this court has had to consider. Mm. So that's, you know, the judge was very unhappy with what had happened, but ultimately concluded that it wasn't so extreme that Dawson couldn't get justice, but did order that, that a period of time needed to elapse before a trial could take place. Mm. This, um, this question of prejudice has been a really big issue for the defence, hasn't it? Because it tried to have the, the trial halted on the basis that the podcast had made it impossible for Chris Dawson to have a fair trial. Uh, he, his lawyers have said they will appeal. Mm. What questions can we expect to be raised there? Uh, a lot, I expect. I think front and centre will be the safety of the verdict. The appeal courts won't quickly overturn either a jury verdict or, or a verdict by a judge, but no doubt the defence will argue that because it was such a circumstantial case, because there was, you know, from the defence's perspective, a viable alternative set of facts that the judge rejected, that there was too much doubt for for the judge to appropriately get to the, the level of satisfaction that he did and that therefore the verdict is unsafe and potentially an innocent man has been convicted. What about the fact that it was a trial by judge? There was no opportunity for Chris Dawson to be tried by a jury. Yeah, and it's an interesting point. The judge who dealt with the stay application didn't find that it would be impossible for Dawson to get a fair trial in front of a jury, but ultimately it was dealt with by a judge alone. So it wasn't... It wasn't a conclusion that a jury couldn't have heard this case. It was a case of such notoriety that it probably would have been impossible to find jurors who hadn't heard of it. But the courts dealing with these issues, they you know say, um, and this is sort of the governing principle, that yes, juries can be tainted and you can have a, a situation where there's too much 
out there to safely send a matter to trial before a jury. But, it, you know, we also should assume that jurors take their job seriously, that they are capable of bringing a fresh mind to the evidence that is presented in court and put out of their mind what they might have heard or seen beforehand. You know, the recent decision in the rape trial of the man accused of, of um, assaulting Brittany Higgins is an example where there was a jury trial coming up and it had to be aborted because of publicity, but it's been put off for a number of months on the basis the judge concluded that, well, it was unsafe at that point. There was too much out there. The jury would be too vulnerable to all of the publicity that was going around, but give it a, a number of months for all that to calm down. And by that stage, it should be possible to get in front of a jury and, and have a fair trial. Yeah, so this case is clearly pretty unusual, but with this kind of wave, if you like, of, of true crime podcasts, what can we expect in terms of problems for the courts in the future? Well, increasing problems and the courts are very alive to it. And obviously with the internet and social media, it's all the bigger because of the reach of stories and because of the access that potentially the jury pool has to not just information but misinformation because with each podcast comes just a you know massive flood of social media speculation so the risks are definitely going up and you know there will be cases quite probably where because of the the way that a case against a person has been reported the extent of that reporting and the tone and content of it, that you know, a court will conclude in a particular case that no, this person cannot get a fair trial, and as a result, you know, justice won't be done. And you know, that was certainly the judge in this case who dealt with the stay application was adverting to this quite explicitly, saying, look, you know, this one's getting close to line ball. If media continue to behave the way that the media did in that case, then you know, that's the territory we're heading into, and that's kind of the worst outcome. Michael Bradley there. He is Managing Director of Mark Lawyers. Well, over the past few weeks, 160,000 or so members of Britain's Conservative Party have been posting in their votes for a new Prime Minister, and the results are about to be tallied up. It's now almost two months since Boris Johnson handed in his resignation. I want to thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. I want to thank all the wonderful staff of the House of Commons. I want to thank all my friends and colleagues. I want to thank my rival friend uh, opposite, Mr Speaker. Uh, I want to thank everybody here and hasta la vista, baby. Thank you. A short list of eight successes was whittled down to two, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, what we in Australia would call the Federal Treasurer, Rishi Sunak, and the favourite Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss. By Monday, if the polls are to be believed, she's highly likely to be named Britain's new Prime Minister. Jill Rutter is a former British civil servant and a senior research fellow of UK in a Changing Europe, which is a think tank. So the front runner at the moment is Liz Truss. She's currently the Foreign Secretary. She was first elected to Parliament in 2010. She's done a lot of jobs. She's 
actually knocked around the cabinet quite a long time. So been through a lot of departments. She also campaigned for Remain in the Brexit referendum in 2016, which is sort of like a defining event in British politics these days. But she switched tack when she saw the result and has now embraced the opportunities of Brexit. Um, she's not a great public speaker, quite awkward. She, if you Google the words Liz Truss and cheese and Liz Truss and pork markets on YouTube, you will see her making one of the most cringeworthy <laughs> party conference speeches of all time. So that's Liz Truss. Rishi Sunak is the former Chancellor of the Exchequer, former because he resigned, and this has been really relevant in this election, he resigned over Boris Johnson's conduct in office, but he was elected much more recently. He didn't get into Parliament until 2015, was a conviction Brexit supporter, but really made his name during the COVID pandemic as the guy that saved your job through the big furlough scheme. So that shot him up the rankings as a really popular cabinet minister. But the shine came off earlier this year when it was discovered that Rishi Sunak is the most the richest politician we've ever had in the UK by absolute miles. His wife, Ashkata Murti, is an Indian citizen and she is the daughter of the founder of Infosys, big Indian tech company, very, very rich. And it was discovered that she claims non-domiciled tax status, which means that she doesn't pay UK tax on her overseas mm. earnings. Nothing illegal about that, but looked a bit bad coming from the guy who is Chancellor of the Exchequer, so our treasurer. Mm. So that's uh, Rishi Sunak. Mm. And just very briefly, if you could, can you sort of sum up their political personalities or, or their political compass, if you like? It's sort of quite difficult, partly because they sort of moved around quite a lot and things aren't quite where you expect. Liz Truss is very big on embracing the opportunities of Brexit, but she's presenting herself very much as a sort of heir to Margaret Thatcher. Actually, both are, but an heir to sort of low-tax, small-state conservatism. And she's made her big sort of platform here, tax cuts, promising to reverse a lot of the tax increases that Rishi Sunak pushed through. So that's really where Liz Truss is coming from. Um, Rishi Sunak is presenting himself as a different sort of Thatcherite. He is presenting himself as a fiscal conservative, somebody who says the first priority is to bring down inflation, currently running around 10% in the UK and forecasts go significantly higher, and that he wouldn't want to take risks with the public finances. So he's been very critical of Liz Truss's economic plans, and that's a really big dividing line. But in terms of demeanour, the big differentiator between the two candidates is that Liz trust, you know, in a sense is a continuity Boris Johnson, some people refer to as Boris Johnson without jokes, that she <laughs> is very optimistic, very boosterish, whereas Rishi Sunak is the man who tells you we're in for a slightly grim time and it's the time to be making tough choices. Right. So Liz Truss is, is the favourite. How certain are we that she is going to come out as, as Britain's next Prime Minister? Well, a Conservative MP friend of mine said, uh, who's backing Rishi Sunak, said it could be the mother of all howlers by the polling companies, and he was still fingers 
across that Rishi Sunak might win. But every poll that has been taken of the Conservative membership shows a really, really big lead for Liz Truss. So it would be a huge surprise. But that said, the votes are still going in and we won't know until they open the envelope on Monday and tell us. Mm. Right. So whoever wins, though, is obviously going to be facing massive challenges. And the issue that really keeps coming up is is the economy. Give us a sense of, of what kind of economy that the new prime minister is inheriting. Well, frankly, they couldn't really be taking over with a worse economic inheritance than the one that they are about to get. So, as I said, inflation is already high, uh, around 10%, but forecasts go significantly higher. So, you've got the potential for high and very volatile energy prices. So, the next thing that happens is real disposable income. So, Household incomes are taking an absolutely massive year-on-year hit, so everybody is poorer. But the energy bill crisis is really acute for an awful lot of less well-off, and indeed middlingly well-off households who face the prospect of eye-watering power bills through the winter. We also have a large number of strikes going on at the moment. We have strikes on railways. We have strikes by the people who collect the rubbish. We have strikes in the mail services. We have barristers about to go on strike. So that's another problem confronting the Prime Minister. Meanwhile, the UK economy was looking a bit poorly Anyway, it suffered some hits from um, making trading arrangements with the European Union significantly harder as a result of Brexit. But another consequence of Brexit, a slightly bizarre consequence of Brexit, is that with the ending of free movement from Europe, a lot of businesses are also suffering from shortages of labour. Well, with Liz Truss pledging, you know, £30 billion worth of tax cuts or so, it's about £50 Australian dollars, uh, and more spending as well. What's that likely to do to this economy? Is it going to help or, or make it worse? Most economists, most conventional economists would say it's a big mistake to do the general tax cuts. Uh, what she really needs to be concentrating her firepower on is helping out the people who really face the prospect of a truly grim winter. So I think it's fair to say that during the course of the leadership election, she has moved from suggesting that tax cuts on their own are enough to recognising that she's going to have to do a lot more in the way of targeted support. She was quite dismissive of this in the early stages of the leadership election, but now seems to have moved to recognising that she wants to do both her tax cuts and the targeted help. I think the really interesting question is when she comes face to face with the official advice next week, if she's prime minister, does she then dial down on tax cuts and mm. say maybe those have to wait? So whoever yeah. wins, will they, in your view, be a better Prime Minister than Boris Johnson? Well, Boris Johnson was quite a popular Prime Minister at various phases, but I think even his best friend wouldn't say he was very good at governing. So, and both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss in many ways have been more successful as cabinet ministers than Boris Johnson ever was in his one cabinet role 
as foreign secretary. So I think we'd expect a higher level of competence from either of them. But I think the really interesting question is what sort of leader do they want to be? And in particular, what sort of cabinet do they construct? Boris Johnson, frankly, had a very mediocre cabinet because he insisted on loyalty first. The really interesting question, I think this is really interesting, particularly for Liz Truss, who has run, as I say, the champion of the uh, Uber Brexiters, is whether she tries to create a cabinet that reflects more of the spectrum of views within the Conservative Party, recognising perhaps that she wasn't the first pick of Conservative MPs and tries to unify the party, whereas Boris Johnson went for a rather sort of myopic vision of you have to back me or I won't even get round to sacking you, I won't appoint you in the first place. That's Jill Rutter, a former British civil servant and a senior research fellow of UK in a changing Europe at Think Tank. Well, that's this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to This Week, which is produced by Madeline Jenner, Nell Whitehead, Will Ockenden and me, David Lipson. <laughs>